Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in November of 2020, I speak with Gautier Chappelle. Gautier is the co-author of a book that just is coming out in English this month, December of 2020, uh, called Another End of the World is Possible. And he's an agricultural engineer. He has a PhD in biology. Um, he's also written for Resilience. He's got a really great piece there called Deep Adaptation Opens Up a Necessary Conversation About the Breakdown of Civilization. You'll see that Gutierrez and I really hit it off. We discovered in the course of the conversation that we both share the same birth date, exactly 10 years apart. And um, I think you'll find him to be profoundly insightful and heartful and just an awesome guy. And I, I, I consider him now a sweet colleague in this, in this space. Well, Gutierrez, it is absolutely fabulous to have you as part of this uh, post-Doom conversation series because I am such a deep bow of respect to those of you in France that are doing this collapsology work, that are writing some of the most important things that I've read on the subject. Um, I know you were engaged, although your name does, isn't listed as a co-author, but you were quite engaged in one of the books I consider one of the more important books on the subject, uh, How Everything Can Collapse. And then, um, and I just read the, the manuscript that you sent me, uh, another end of the world is possible, live the collapse and don't just survive it. And so I don't know, it's just a joy to have you as part of this series. And uh, especially given the fact that we share so many mentors and friends and colleagues. Um, and I just want to invite you at the start to just share for those of us listening to this or watching this who may not be familiar with your work, they may not be familiar with uh, what, you know, those of you in France are doing in this whole world of collapsology which is a term that I um, now use quite regularly, even for myself. Um, so introduce yourself, take your, take your time, don't be bashful, but help us get you, help us uh, have a sense of what you're passionate about, what you're committed to, what you're well known for, and then what brings you to this conversation. Okay, thanks. Thank you first for inviting us. I feel a, a bit like the representative of, of our trio. Um, and, um, and okay, so I, um, let's go into it. Uh, so uh, the first thing I would like to say probably is that I'm a naturalist by passion uh, since I'm a, I'm a kid basically. And uh, that I have to say opened my mind and my attention to what was happening to the, the living world. Let's put it like this. Um, one of the, the, the key moments for me was when I, I came to Brittany to live one year with my parents, and that was just six months after probably at that time the biggest oil spill that ever occurred in Europe. That was the Amoco Cadiz, if you remember so. Yep. Um, and uh, it was six months after, and literally we could still see the, the boat, uh, what was left of the boat from the place where we were living. So obviously it had a, a, an impact on me. I was 10 years old at that time. 10 years old, now. Yeah. Yep. Uh, then I studied later on, I studied um, first, uh, I trained as an agriculture engineer, and then I made a PhD in biology. And uh, funnily enough, it's exactly the same thing that Pablo did, Pablo Servigne, uh, yeah. our co-author, did uh, 10 years later, because he's, he's 10 years uh, younger than me. And... Um, and 
during this thesis, I had the, the, the huge uh, opportunity to go to Antarctica several times. And that was my second place of, let's say, uh, consciousness, uh, you know, uh, awareness rising. Uh, and specifically in 1988, when I, I end up on a beach, which was covered with plastic in Antarctica, which was rather impressive. And, and actually rather shocking. Uh, I mean, it, it made me cry. I was uh, 19 years old at that time. And, uh, and that was in 1988. So the wow. amount of plastic in 88 was nothing compared to what it yes. is now and to what it will be in, in 20 years time. What, I've, I've got to ask, what led you or how did you, was this involved in a, in a university program that you were involved in? How did you get to go to Antarctica? Uh, in fact, uh, it was for my, my thesis. Uh, I was uh, studying crustacean uh, reproduction and then crustacean gigantism, uh, which is common in polar regions. Uh, so it was for very, let's say, fundamental research, but I was ready to study whatever I, uh, I could to go there yes. uh, as a naturalist, as you can imagine. Yes. Uh, but I was not prepared to that shock. I have to say that yes. this, was, uh, this was really something. And then in the next uh, 10, 15 years, I went again to Antarctica. And the last time it was during the International Polar Year in 2007 to look at the effect of climate change on the, the, the bentos or the bottom fauna uh, in the peninsula. And that was another shock because we were uh, navigating in an area that was ice-free for the first time for at least 40,000 years or something yes. like this, uh, which was strange in a way because we could see a normal Antarctic scenery, but we knew that we had nothing to do there uh, except if uh, without the role of climate change, it, it wouldn't have been possible. We would have a, a shelf of uh, 300 meters uh, depth instead of uh, free water. So that was another of these moments. And that led me, uh, at that time, I was working for a foundation which was uh, uh, making education about, let's say, sustainable development, which was still a, a term at that time, right. uh, and uh, climate change. And, and uh, when I came back from, from that expedition specifically, but also making more and more conferences, uh, I was feeling increasingly in desperate because I could feel that whatever we were saying and doing, the, let's say the figures were not, were not changing and that we right. were still making things worse than worse. Exactly. Um, and so that's, that's the time where I really looked for a way to, to deal with these with this, uh, desperate feelings. And that's when I took, as we all do, you know, we all have our, our series of books waiting on the shelf. And then suddenly it's the time to take one book out of the, of the pile. And that was one book from Joanna Macy that I had for several years and which gave me the clue. And so you know the despair work so yes. i looked for the for workshops and there was the first workshop in french in belgium i'm, I'm living in belgium actually uh, coming to belgium like six months after which yes. was a good uh, chance mm -hmm. and to me it was a it was a revelation uh, especially the second part of the work which is working on on all the, the difficult uh, emotions so yep. uh, sadness uh, fear uh, despair and what, what's my last one? Um, sadness, fear, and uh, angst, which yes. is which is maybe the most taboo. 
Um, and so that opened really my heart. Let's let's talk it like, say it like this. And also uh, was very in continuity with uh, my let's say inner uh, voyage to to the most sacred part of my relationship with life, which yes. being a naturalist was a good preparation, but you can also be a naturalist and not being connected to the, the secret, sacred dimension of life. And so that was coming at these, in these, in these same years, let's say. Uh, and then we moved uh, with Raphael Stevens, who is the, the, the third of the trio. That's when we met, before we met uh, Pablo. And we, cre we, we discovered biomimicry, which was uh, rising in, in the US, uh, thanks to Janine Benius at yes. the time. So we're maybe five years later after her book. Uh, I discovered that at the Schumacher College, which is another amazing place as, a, as, a, as you know, really? uh, to discover these kind of things. And so uh, together with Raphael, when I was back, we created an, an NGO and then, um, um, uh, how do you say, um, a business, you know, uh, an office. Like a uh, non-profit? Yeah, no, no, actually a profit. So oh, we okay. created a non-profit and yeah. then a profit uh, who is uh, offering its services to uh, to businesses and to sure. public, public. Like a consulting business? Yes, okay, that's it. A consulting company, sorry. Uh, offering these services and based mostly on biomimicry. Uh, we did that for eight, nine years, and then again we had to come to the, to the, you know, to acknowledge that actually whatever we were doing, us and many others, of course, that things were still not changing. Yes. And so that's when uh, also we met Pablo more or less at that time, and that we realized that we had very strong uh, interests in common. One being around. A mutual aid that's another book that we've yep. written together but which is not yet translated in english but which will come uh, probably next year good glad and, to hear that <laughs> yes and so mutual aid was one of our common topics and and collapse that's yes. when they developed the collapse uh, theory with uh, with rafael while at the same time i was writing a book about biomimicry mainly to say that biomimicry was going into greenwashing as the yes. previous and the following concepts that uh, keep feeding capitalism. Well, yes, it's, it's uh, okay. Let's say coming to this point where we were uh, writing about collapse was one thing and then, then uh, doing it was another one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm saying this because you insist on this uh, emotional side because in a way uh, it's when Rafael and Pablo wrote the first book that they went themselves through a whole emotional process uh, we were helped and that's where we are not exactly of course the same the three of us but each of us was helped by more or less its own practice mm -hmm. but one of the things we share with pablo is both the work that reconnects which uh, rafael also shares because he has spent one year in schumacher college whereas mm -hmm. i've been only in short courses and also, uh, I mentioned it straight away, uh, both Pablo and me, we've been through also Mankind Project initiation and more. And, uh, and that helped us also a lot and gave, made, made sense in a way uh, to, to feel, you know, to feel, I don't know how to say that, but to, to, to stand, to stand as humans and specifically as men, of course, because we are men, um, 
in front of of not only the the, the perspective of the collapse but also of what it yeah what it's dri drives inside you and inside our our you know partners and friends and families and so on yes. because as you know it's, it's also on a, a whole process especially when not everybody goes at the same speed exactly but uh, i guess exactly. Aaron baker mentioned that I mean, you're 10 years younger than I am. I just turned 62 yesterday, but, um, yesterday, yes, yesterday. I'm from the 19th. Yeah. 19th. Uh, yeah. So, so do I. You, so you, you turned 52 yesterday. Yes. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's too amazing. good. That's too good. I, I yeah, that, that's too great. Yeah. So, um, you know, so we've got exactly a decade between us and yet I feel a, a such a brother, uh, a soul brother passion with you for these ideas. And so I just want you to both share your story, but also a little bit more about, you've mentioned Joanna Macy, of course, and Bill Kalth, but anybody else that you want to share in terms of mentors um, um, and colleagues that you find a closer relationship. So just feel free to flesh that out a little bit more. Um, okay, so maybe... One thing I, I can add immediately, I mean, the person that comes to my mind immediately is Bill Plotkin. That's, yes. that's another one which for us is really big. And I say for us, because again, uh, also uh, Pablo certainly, maybe a bit less Rafael, but Bill Plotkin and especially the book, uh, to me, this foundational book in my perception is the one uh, giving the, the eight steps uh, it's a book one, the, the Bible. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, the big red book uh, as it seems to be known. And, uh, and to me, to me uh, one of the concepts also that we've put in, in our book, by the way, uh, reflecting on him, is um, the, the question of pato-adolescence, as he said. He's, yes. He's telling uh, that our Western society is a pato-adolescent society, which I have to say, unfortunately, I totally agree with. And, and in another little book, he wrote about, um, about the three, let's say, symptoms of this and that I want to mention straight ahead, really saying that it's, it's not being, you know, proud or whatever, but it's just, it's just a fact. And the three thing is that first, uh, that we, are, uh, we, we think that we will live for, forever, yep. and uh, both uh, as is shown by transhumanism at a personal level, but as is shown that this civilization thinks that it's perfect and that it can live forever. Uh, so that's one thing. The, the, the second thing is that we want, like all teenagers, we want everything all the time on the, on the spot immediately, um, which is fine when you are a teenager, but not anymore when you yes, are a exactly. bit older. And then the third thing is that uh, all the previous people have are idiots who didn't understand anything. We know everything. <laughs> and, and, for, and to me, I'm very sensitive to, to this question as a biomimetist, biomimeticist, uh, whatever you say, mm -hmm. uh, because of course, biomimicry is exactly saying the opposite. Biomimicry is saying that our ancestors are our mentors and our ancestors meaning back to the bacteria from 3.8 billion years ago and uh, and this is this is to me also the link by the way between biomimicry which has been an important part of my life for nearly 10 years and which still is by the way uh, at a lower yeah. level but still is uh, and uh, because biomimicry i think by offering the what we call the life principles uh, offer us the guidelines uh 
to prevent the collapse if we had had time, but we didn't do it, to go through the collapse and to reinvent something as you define it after the collapse, if we are still, if there are still humans uh, to do it. And so these are other, other yeah, important, let's say, uh, directions that I'm, I'm still following. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just getting back to this disconnection uh, question, to me, it's another thing that we actually, we experienced with Bill Plotkin during a wor another workshop in Schumacher College years later, together yep. with my partners from the work that reconnects, by the way. And that was around the, you know, the, the, the shift we have to make from a relationship which considered us as the only subjects and all the, the other than other than humans, as we say, as uh, as objects. Uh, and with with Bill and Janine, we really experienced. I mean, uh, not just in theory, but uh, going yes. through the forest. Uh, what it what it is to build uh, a relationship from subject to subject, which which bring me, by the way, to this to this fact that you can be a naturalist and completely consider what you observe just as objects. And, and to me, it was a, a fantastic uh, reconciliation to, to be able to, to do both. And, uh, and no, and that's another thing I, I, important maybe to mention. I've been living uh, in Brussels, so in a town for 30 years, and now I've moved uh, for two years now outside uh, in in the countryside but not just in the countryside but with a river at the end of the of the garden and with the forest around which maybe is something common in the US or easier to get but I can tell you in Belgium in one of the densest country in the world it's not that easy um, to to have and and to me it's it has just changed everything even one step further and now I'm sure. when I'm I'm discovering all these other inhabitants, I feel like each time, uh, you know, meeting meeting other other guys, or I don't know how to say. Uh, yeah, other, yeah, yeah, yeah. Other beings. Just, yeah, not just identifying them, but but also naming them and honoring them. And by the way, but at the same time, I want to honor somebody I'm reading right now that I'm sure you know, um, who who wrote uh, "Braiding Sweetgrass." Oh yes, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yes, uh, I think she would. She would be great also in your series if she oh, feels yes. like. Well, actually, I I invited her. She said yes, and we just haven't scheduled it yet. Yes, yes, I I find this this book absolutely brilliant, and especially brilliant to give us yeah to give her all her insight as a as a botanist as this amazing mix she is. I don't know if everybody knows her as a botanist. Uh, Amerindian, how do you say, you know? Uh, yeah, it, 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 how, her, she brings together Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm -hmm. Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, Indigenous Wisdom, uh, Scientific Knowledge and the Teachings of Plants, I think is the, the yes. subtitle. And being a mother and a grandmother. Yes, and exactly. completely being proud of it and, 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 and using it exactly. to, to tell us a lot of things. And yeah. to me, it's kind of a recipe book to how to, how to behave Yes, it is. Next, uh, it's it's the manner. It's the manners of how to behave Absolutely. in the living world. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Well, I was just a part of a Guyan discussion group that Eric Asadorian got started, uh, and we we've been um, discussing various books. One of them we discussed was actually um, a book with the same title um, as uh, Pablo and Raphael's book, uh, "Another End of the World Is Possible," uh, by, by John Halstead. Actually, I um, found it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, he and I led a discussion 
about that book and and one other one. And then uh, the next one, just just maybe three weeks ago, we discussed Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And so it's, it's fresh on my mind. The other thing that I'll mention for anybody watching or listening to this is that Robin records it in her own voice. So the audio book is narrated by Robin Wall Kimmerer and she reads with such native storytelling skill and pace and I can't even tell you it's seven, 10 times at the end or near the end of a chapter, we were, Connie and I were moved to tears okay. listening to her reading her own book. So. Yeah. Just reading it brought me to tears several <laughs> times, I have to say. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Some of the parts I was saying, oh my God. And even, and, and I'm not native English speaker. I'm, I, I can yes. imagine what it, uh, it has to be for. Yes. When you yes. really feel all the sub subtleties of the language, yeah. But anything you want to say about how this big picture perspective, that this epic of evolution or, or big history, but not big history interpreted in a human centered way, but, you know, the history of everyone and everything. How does that, how has that informed you? How does it inspire you? How have you found that helpful? Uh, yes. First, I have to, to say that because I'm a biologist and a naturalist, by heart more than by training uh, it's i'm really always referring to the to life to the, the story of life more than the story of the universe whereas i'm still also discovering the importance of putting that even in the, the bigger picture of the story of the universe so i'm using this scale of uh, let's say the the birth of the of the earth and 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 so you know then the life if we refer to uh, one calendar year so life appears uh, end of february and uh, etc and of course our industrial civilization so i go the whole calendar through uh, is the is the last second and what what i like with this with this uh, realization is that, i mean there are several uh, conclusions you can take the, the first being that um we've been very efficient in one second in one second we've been very very efficient to to destroy a lot of things not to destroy everything but to destroy a lot of things at the same time you can also say if if we are there only for let's say the industrial civilization only for one second it also means that we can correct a lot of things because it's just one second on the whole year so i wish i held that faith maybe still i don't yeah anymore. well yeah no i still yeah but it doesn't it doesn't mean that we won't have any crisis because right, yeah, and, right. but life have been through crisis already so for i don't think for life it's an issue right. i'm always saying okay if we are already at the sixth extinction it means there were five before and there were there will be more after yes not a big deal for us that's another story of course <laughs> for our civilization yes. it's doomed but for for the species i'm i'm still quite uh, optimistic uh, but okay let's first stick to to your question uh, another one which is from biomimicry is saying okay so we have to maybe turn on the right or turn on, on the left or maybe go backwards a bit which is not forbidden by anything so we can go backwards it's not a shame we can do that and before taking another direction and to do that we have mentors and we have mentors which have been showing the way since end of feb that's a lot of time whereas we are one second and so th that that's the good part of it that's a great framing because i haven't even used that when i when i tell the history of the universe life really begins at 72 on a 100 year time scale so all the things related to gaia or the biosphere or the ecosphere is from 72 to right now midnight on december 31st of the 99th year but i haven't thought 
to add that framing that you just offered, which is look at look at the teachers that we have that go back. So that's beautiful. Yeah, and and then at the same time, so that, that's maybe the the, the code analysis. But then also to me, it relating, you know, it's like Thomas Berry does is that if, if you feel too desperate about what is happening now, remember that we are part of a much bigger story. And, and even if it's not going to stop any suffering or whatever, but, but still we have, we have not only this, this, this background of, of mentors, but also this wonderful family with, which yes. is always showing us all the time how much life is powerful and how much life is fighting all the time. And, and fighting is not even the, the, a good word because it's, it's a bit uh, military, but, but it's, it's always pushing, pushing to come back. And as soon as you, 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 you lift the lid, <laughs> they are there, the, yes, the plants, exactly. the mushrooms, the bacteria, right. everything. And, and to me, the, the more, I mean, I think like many of us who are going through this collapse acceptance process, the more I, I look to the living world, even if it also gives me some, some suffering by, by feeling what is happening to them, but at the same time, it gives me also all the time, I'm one completely baffled by their, their, their uh, power and their beauty yes. and their, their abundance and their relationship and what they build together and how they can adapt and how they have adapted to, to, to anything. And even if I'm worried, I can tell you when I go, uh, I do that because it's behind my window. When I go into the forest, I have always these mixed feelings. I'm at the same time worried about what can happen because we can see it here as I guess in, in your place that the forest is suffering. We have yes. you know, three years in a row with uh, very, very low uh, rain during summer and, yep. and a lot of heat. Uh, but at the same time, I can also see, and I discuss it a lot with other biologists, how life is adapting already. And maybe it's going to be difficult because as we know, this climate change that we are imposing is very, very fast compared to normal climate change, uh, non-anthropogenic non climate change. But still, still, I think spe some species will get through and, and we will be again the, the species in trouble. Yes, no, exactly. Well, you know, earlier I meant to comment when you talked about having relating to the living beings of the, of the world as subjects in their own right. I, I'm reminded of a, one of my favorite quotes. Thomas Berry was my most significant male mentor. Well, he and, and uh, Bill Catton, William Catton, uh, who wrote Overshoot. But Thomas Berry, since 1988, was a very significant uh, influence for me. Um, and, you know, he famously said, the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And uh, I know Daniel Wildcat, a, a Native American elder, says something similar, that we live among relatives, not resources. And that, that sense of relationality is just absolutely vital. Um, yeah, I, it is heartbreaking also to have, to, have a, to have an awareness of all this, as you all do, and as I do, and Connie does. She's also a naturalist. Um, uh, in fact, she regularly cites Darwin and, and others who say that they're a naturalist first and a scientist second, you know, <laughs> um, but um, there's, there, there can really be that heartbreak because you see the diminishment of life's diversity and, and complexity and, and uh, fecundity. And, you know, yes, it's, there's comfort in knowing that 
life will continue. Life has a way of doing that, no matter how bad the, the collapse. But still, when you've fallen in love with a forest, when you fall in love with trees, when you fall in love with a watershed, uh, it, it's still heartbreaking when you see your beloved um, um, declining and knowing that the trajectory things are on does not look good. Yeah, yeah, yeah de definitely. Yeah, um, yeah uh, that's the reaction I have. You know, reading Robin Wolkimer, um, it's because, you know, reading it from a European perspective, I guess, is probably quite different because we don't have our indigenous people around us anymore. They have, yes. They've been vanishing yes. for maybe 2000 years yes. officially. And probably you can consider that some of the, you know, the peasant communities were still living in a very close proximity, mm -hmm. but, but that's also more or less gone. Yeah. And so in a way, uh, going out of the city right now is important. I can feel how much for me, and, and also because it's a place we've chosen not for the, for the, the other than humans, but also for the human community that was mm -hmm. also a driver to come at this very particular place. And, and as you just said, I have, to me, it's difficult and heartbreaking to feel how much it's nourishing for me to now plant my roots here mm -hmm. and know that maybe w one day, if not me, maybe my son or, or my partner who is uh, much younger than me, uh, will have to move yes. because maybe conditions will become just not livable anymore. And that's okay, that's a two way realization. Finally, getting indigenous to the place, that's great. And at the same time, yes. we, we have to know and to acknowledge that. For all of us, no, we probably always have the possibility to move. But then you get back again to these uh, ancestors of Robin Walkimer and others who have moved, who have mm -hmm. been pushed, yes. pushed by, um, by the Westerners all the time and, mm -hmm. and, and who have each time replanted their roots and, and recreated a relationship to the land. So For about 10 years, Connie and I did programs, public mm -hmm. programs on a, a meaningful, inspiring evidential interpretation so a, a totally science-based understanding of the reality of impermanence and death mortality but then interpreting that in ways that are soul nourishing and and emotionally uh um inviting and so that's my language but uh, but just any any ways that you think about mortality and death that you find helpful in this collapse context yeah Okay, so again, to me, there are a bit two sides. The, the first is uh, the, the most analytical, and it's, again, something I completely realized when I was entering biomimicry, is that life, uh, I mean, death, sorry, death is a life principle in itself. If you don't have death in an ecosystem, it just can't go exactly. on for, forever. And of course, that goes also with circularity. We know not only that death allows life, but that death is nourishing life. Yes. And, and and to me to me the best example the most i don't know the the, the most uh, pedagogic uh, example are trees we know that when trees are living that there's only the outer layer which is actually living the whole trunk is dead cells and then once they are dead because there are so much uh, animals bacteria uh, fungi and so on going inside to eat them they they become more alive than than ever and and i find that I love it. I, I really love it. So that's the an analytical side. Then on my relationship to death myself, uh, maybe first say that I have originally I have a Catholic background, but I would I should say my parents have a Catholic background mm -hmm. that they dropped 
quite early in my childhood. So although I have I have Catholic references, uh, I was never really inside it, let's say. Um, and, and actually, when I studied uh, agricultural engineering, I had my scientist uh, anti, <laughs> you know, anti-spirituality phase, maybe for three, four, three, sure. four years. Sure. And then I came back to it and I came back to it. And, and to me, it's important to say I came back to it, um, strangely enough, by with the dolphins. Uh, I've been uh, close to citations uh, maybe for more than 10 years of my life, including uh, some relationship with what we call ambassador dolphins, which are um, uh, wild dolphins, usually solitary dolphins that come to to have relationship with people. And one wow. of them especially was like a mentor for me. And it was to me a, real, a realization. It was my first contact with this subject to subject relationship with an animal, but even more than that, because I, I could feel him as a mentor. Yes. And as a spiritual mentor, by the yes. way. Yes. And that's when it opened my mind. At the same time, I was also reading a lot of things about um, near-death experience. I had the opportunity to discuss it a bit with my grandma, who went through to it several times. And, and also because when she died, actually, I was together with the rest of my family around her, and I was holding her hand when she was wow. dying, wow. which has been a tremendous experience. How old were you? Completely I was 22, I think, okay. and I was. It completely changed my view of 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 death, by experience, which was absolutely <laughs> a, such a present from life, from her, from everything. Yes. And and no, um, uh, even if I don't know how to name also what is this immanent force, or I mean, I don't have a lot of vocabulary to to qualify that, but I, I know what I feel. And, and to me, uh, it's just if we have a, you know, a, a big conscious force which indeed fills the universe and that every now and then uh, incarnates itself in creatures, including us, but not just us. Yes, exactly. And, and which means also that, uh, that I, I deeply feel and, and think that when we, then when we die, there's only one part of us which is dying. And that also, which is even more for me important for the collapse, means also that we didn't come now for any reason, that each of us has, like Bill Plotkin says, a special place in the world, what he, how he defines the soul, which I com completely resonate with. And which means that um, not only us, we, we came at a special time, but, but that brings also the question about kids, because that's, a, that's a, I don't know how it is in the US, but I can tell you that in the French speaking community, um, this question of kids in this uh, pre-collapse uh, society is a real question and, and more than a question to me, it's even, it's even sometimes a drama. We know, know about more and more uh, young girls who are, uh, how to say, uh, sterilizing. Yes. To, not to have kids because right. they are afraid to have kids in this time, which I can understand that they right, are afraid. Exactly. Right. But, but which is a very strong decision. Uh, and at the same time, it's their decision. I respect it yes. in, in its essence. But, but it means to me that we still have a lot of things to say and of conditions to create, to, to, to welcome all these people in their you know, in their U-shape um, phase when they discover through us or through anything else 
the, the, the possibility of the collapse to, to maybe do something else. And it's, and it's the opportunity for me to say that the three of us had a kid while we were, but you've read that part, mm -hmm. while we were writing, uh, writing uh, these books. So, so we don't live it the same way. Yes, and I'm so grateful that you included that in the book because I have both in my family experience. Uh, I have three children. My 37-year-old daughter uh, is the mother of my 10-year-old granddaughter. My son is 35. He's just got married to a 31-year-old Colombian South American woman, and they've chosen to not have children, and he's fully collapse aware. And that's not the only reason that he wants, they both want to be of service, but they don't, they don't feel called to, to have children. And, and, and he, he had a vasectomy so that he, you know, can't have children. And my youngest daughter, who's 30, she and her husband, they got married three years ago and a year and a half ago, they were contemplating uh, getting uh, pregnant. And I had a lot of anxiety around that of bringing a child into the world because all three of my children are collapse aware. They're not as immersed in it as I am and Connie and I are, but they're certainly aware. Um, and I had a major breakthrough just a, a year and a half ago where I was um, in Florida, I was um, with my nephew for a month where my brother and sister-in-law went to England. And I had this, this flood of trust flew over me where, where it just washed over me, where all of a sudden, all of the fear I had evaporated. And I thought to myself this, I thought, okay, what if worst case scenario, this is the last generation of women to be able to have children? Would I really want my daughter to not have that experience, to have her and her husband have something larger than themselves to, to, to give to? And it was like this flood of, of trust. And so I cried and cried and I called her up and we both cried. And basically I said, whatever you all are led to do, I am a total full-throated, big-hearted support of that. And then found out a month and a half later that literally three weeks after that conversation, they got pregnant. Now, to what degree she needed her old man's support, I have no idea, but it was, it was amazing timing. And now, after 19 years of living on the road, Connie and I are settled two blocks from my six-month-old granddaughter. And I spend an hour and a half to two hours, five days a week, caring for my granddaughter and talk about having skin in the game and waking me up each day, excited to do something on behalf of the future. And when I'm with her, all the collapse of cares of the world just evaporate. There's just this divine being. And so I've got both my son choosing not to have children and having a vasectomy and my youngest daughter choosing to have a ch child. And I've only become aware recently that there's a real debate within the collapse aware community and not just a debate, some real judgment uh, yeah. among, you know, those who choose to not, you know, sort of antinatalists or sometimes they're called where they choose. I, I had one person attack me on the collapse, the Reddit sub collapse as being a pronatalist. I had to look it up. <laughs> I didn't know what he meant. And I was like, oh, because I say that I love my granddaughter. I'm a pronatalist. Okay. Well, guilty as accused, I guess. <laughs> So I was really grateful that the three of you chose to include that in in your uh, in your book. Mm, yeah, and, and basically what what we said is was uh, yeah we are not taking position. We were just talking about ourselves, Correct. and 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 here I'm going to be very personal because this is very personal indeed. I'm not going to talk for the, the two others, uh, but what 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 I feel is that 
to me the 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 simple reason so i have two two grown-up kids which are 20 and 23 and then i have one kid now who is uh, three years old and and to me the the reason to to have this kid was was that he, he wanted to come and that i that I was feeling the, the power of life again. And to me, I was not going to stop this power of life, even if I was worried on, on the future, which I am, of course. Yes, of course. Um, and, and so let's say that's, that's to me the basic and nearly only reason to have one. And then I can think a bit, a bit further, and this gives further support, but it's not the motivation at all, is that if, if people who are aware about the collapse stop having kids, whereas only people who are unaware of the collapse still go on with having kids, I'm not sure it's the best deal we can offer to the earth. But, but again, it's not a reason to have. No, exactly. It's just, it's just right. something I, I thought of afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and then also that's a self-realization is that when you have kids, it gives you yourself an incredible power. And again, yes. you don't do kids to have power. Yes. That's not the reason, but it's just the fact. Again, I mean, if you, if you have to, yeah, if you have to, to fight for this world to be livable and pleasant, and as you said, as in the subtitle, not just to survive, but to live in the, in the well, having kids, it, it also doesn't break the chain of which starts not 300,000 years ago, but 3.8 billion years ago. Yes, exactly. And, and I'm still feeling part of this flow and of this chain. And I, I don't see why yes. I would break it. And, but okay, people who are, don't want, it's, it's fine, but I can't, I just can't. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's a distinction that I make um, between doom and post-doom. Um, and, uh, oftentimes, you know, certainly for myself, when I was in doom, when I, that's all I could see, I was still very much filled with fear and judgment. I had a lot of blame and judgment towards the fossil fuel companies and towards, you know, uh, the religion that's been asleep at the wheel and blah, 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 blah. And in a post doom, the longer I've lived in, a, in what I call a post doom heart and mind. Um, the blame just sort of evaporates. I realized that these patterns, these human-centered, anthropocentric patterns have been at work for thousands of years, um, that we are part of a lineage of boom and bust, uh, progress and regress civilizations that are destined to collapse, that we're actually, if you start looking at the systems that we depend upon, we're actually decades already into collapse. So it's not a matter of will it happen. And so I, I find the blame goes, but the other thing that goes is the if only. If only everybody didn't fly. If only everybody became vegan. If only everybody stopped having children. If only everybody didn't have cars. You know, that sense that, that it's almost sort of a panic sense that if we just could get everybody to do this one good thing and you can actually show statistically that that would make a difference. And yet I think that we're all beyond that. So that's why I love this post doom conversation where I get to have conversations with colleagues um, who mostly live in that place of no longer playing the, if only game, no more, no longer playing the blame game and trying to live with as much compassion and generosity and love of life as possible uh, in our various spheres, spheres of, of activity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I have to say that although the the if only game, this one I stopped for, for I'm not saying for a long time, but already for for some years. Uh, the blaming game, I have to say that every now and then when some things comes up, I still have my you know 
getting to it again but but uh, but having uh, not only the world africanx process but also the community that that, yes. that goes around and of course then going outside or playing with my kids yes. can can you know extinguish this this feeling uh, let's say faster and faster but at the same time i have to say and to me that's that's another um let's say lesson of joanna macy is that it's fine if you have blaming <laughs> blaming time i i, I as long as you don't you know don't do anything wrong with the, with it and if you can express it and actually i think it helps also people who are only you know getting into the doom to have still uh, people who are a bit further in the process still having their access of, of blaming if it's in a ritual i mean you know the, the truth mandala yes. uh, if it's a ritual in a container with with uh, empathy and so on that's fine. So yes. No, that, I've, seen, I've seen Joanna, by the way. I've seen Joanna. I think that's the, the last time I saw her, actually the first and last time I saw her, the last time she came to Europe. And, and we had a Truth Mandala, six of us together. And she made a burst of angst in the middle of it. It was brilliant. <laughs> and so such a relief for all of us. So we, we had a miss, Mrs. Buddha, you know, in the... Yeah, Mrs. Buddha. <laughs> no, not at all. We had just had Joanna with her her power and her roaring herself yeah. yeah fantastic <laughs> yes i'm glad that you added all that that's perfect that's great well beginning to wind this down i know that um there are aspects of this book that you were particularly engaged with and have a real passion for um and uh, you had mentioned those in, uh, in an email anything that you would like to say about uh you know you've already said quite a bit but any connection with other humans uh, ecofeminism, patriarchy, anything that you want to say about some of those aspects that you contributed to the book? Uh, yeah, well, I think this this topic of uh, patriarchy is is to me very important, and again, in uh, in two ways. Um, well, first, because I think that preparing this post-doom uh, civilization, I'm not even sure I want to call it civilization. In yeah, I don't use the word civilization. You have towns, and I think towns are part of the problems more than part of the solution. And I don't like the term solution either, by the way. So let's yes, drop it. Predicament. Right. Yes. Um, so uh, to me, what, what I want to say about that is that in all the, the, the fundamental things we have to change in our culture, more than in our yes. stuff, but in our culture. So we've already talked about this subject to object shifting to subject to subject that's that's a huge one and to me another huge one is the relationship and here the the, the words are difficult between let's say what we call uh, the masculine and the feminine so not so much the men and women but the masculine and the feminine mm -hmm. with this idea that all of us are, are how to say have inside us archetypes from one side to another with the whole gradient in between, with again, the, the difficulty, especially with the youngest generation to, to uh, attributing some traits to masculine or others to feminine and becomes sometimes tricky. And to me, it's not so much important, but at this, because many say it's only cultural, which I don't totally yeah, agree no, don't with, so. by the way, because I'm a biologist <laughs> yes, and exactly. I'm a father. Yes. More important, I'm a father yes. and yes. I know some things that I've not been able to experience because yes. I'm a father. I'm not yes. a mother. Yes, I've exactly. not been realizing what it is to have somebody else in my own body saying, uh -uh, I'm doing what I want. <laughs> 
and I've not I've not been through uh, uh, how to say um, giving birth obviously, mm -hmm. and also then uh, giving giving milk, uh, suckling, yes, suckling, yes. And, nursing, and all of the, all of those things which makes that a woman is not a man and a man is not a woman. But okay, let's not go too deep in this debate. My point is the same point as ecofeminism is bringing up, has been bringing up in a fantastic way, saying we have been uh, um, torturing nature as we've done with women. And if we, if we want to stop doing one, we have to stop doing both. And that goes in, in, into both directions. And I have to say that this, to me, is also huge because the work is huge. Because yes. even even if I have realized that for at least no 10 years in details, experiencing it as a man is still not easy. And I'm still fighting, for example, right now to become, and I'm saying it loudly to, to persuade myself to still continue the job, to become a half-time father at home. Yes. So not just half-time father, that's, that's easy, but also taking care of the whole, you know, the, the whole part. We, we have a say in French, I don't know how it translates in, in English. La, we, we say the, the load, the moral load. Um, no, mental, mental load. Uh, start, a, start that again. I had a car drive past. It was really loud. Okay. Say that again. We have a saying in French, which, which is called the mental load. And the, the mental, mental load, load does it make sense in English? Yeah, yeah. You know, the mental load is what women do in, in all uh, modern couples. They are, it's still the, the, the women which bear the mental load of having, having everything run at home, for example. Yeah. And this, this is, to me, one of the, the good symptoms and one of the signs of, uh, of have we come to, to a real balance between men and women in a, in a couple. There's another, I have a friend who's saying the test is easy. Who is cleaning the toilet? <laughs> And, and, and it's and it's a good one. And, and it's a good one. Um, so just to say, but the, this is a bit. I mean, it's like a joke of saying this, but but it goes much deeper, much deeper than that. Indeed, uh, for example, one of my latest realization on that was that even the way we write science. I mean, all the women that write science write science as men do, as men have invented. You know, when you know the. The, 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 the common, uh, you know, peer-reviewed paper with uh, introduction, uh, results, uh, no, uh, first uh, materials and methods and then results and so on. That's a very, very man way to write a paper. Right. And, and then you, when you go into some of these books of ecofeminism, you find them, you know, weaving together poems and then more structured parts and so right. on. That's feminine way of writing. And they are so, so rare. They are still so rare, even in, in women. So, so I think there's a tremendous, you know, path and exploration still to be made to get out of this patriarchy. Yeah. So that, that's one thing. And the other thing about patriarchy, which is a key for me, and that's a bit of an obsession for me, I have to say, <laughs> is that patriarchy has also built the hierarchical systems. Hierarchical systems. Hierarchical systems. Um, which is a key for me. And, and it's a key for me as a biologist again, because there is no ecosystems functioning like this before the big cities, when they emerge in the fertile crescent. Uh, yeah, maybe, before, the, uh, before we started mining metals. Yeah, we, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
by the way, I have to mention another book that has just been translated from German. He is the, the French version, The End of the Mega Machine. I don't know if you've seen it in English because it's just out in English now. You have to read that absolutely. Okay, The End of the Mega Machine, yes. right? Yes, Fabian Scheidler. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about it because he, he speaks a lot about just what you said about uh, how metal has has put everything uh, yeah. is a cause and a consequence of uh, hierarchy uh, yes. pyramids and i think i have another friend who is a, a um, um, physician i mean in physics a physics specialist right. who says if you want to if you have a, a number of uh, dots and you want to connect the dots with the the, the greatest efficiency yeah, the smaller number of, mm -hmm. of links, you got a hierarchy. Yeah. And, and that means that it's the most uh, stupid system because there's a, the less redundancy. And, and, and to us, the, the, the important fact is that when you have a big hierarchy like this, if you get a shock, because you lack redundancy, because you are waiting for a reaction from the top, first the information has, get, has to get to the top and is simplified in the process. And then they take the decision and then it goes down. And that's very slow, very inefficient. And for collapse, for uh, shocks, it's completely inefficient. And that's probably why you don't have forests functioning like this. Right. Because if they have tried, they've been wiped out. That's, my, that's a theory. Huh? It's not a... It's yep. not a fact, but, but, but it's a fact that, that all forests and all uh, coral reefs and all ecosystems function with uh, interconnection, but not that way, not in a hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the biggest influence for me in that regard was uh, Andrew Bard uh, Schmuckler's book, um, The Parable of the Tribes. And that whole notion, I don't know if that was ever translated into, Eng, uh, into French, but it was, uh, you know, this whole idea that once you have a domination hierarchically organized culture mining metals, there becomes this almost uh, an evolutionary arms race uh, uh, that you have to either develop that kind of mindset to protect yourself. And it kind of eventuates in the world that we now have, which is ultimately unsustainable and self-destructive, but mm -hmm. it's almost like we had to go through this on my time scale of the last day. If you imagine the, the, a 24 hour period being the whole of human history um, uh, in terms of homo sapiens, it's only the last half hour that we've had this kind of uh, uh, an arrangement and uh, and what will, you know, should any human being survive this bottleneck, which I think there's a fairly decent chance of, of that happening, natural selection shows us that it will only be those indigenous or indigenous um, cultures that can live in a re reciprocal way with the living world uh, that will likely continue into the future, especially given the fact that so much of the world is likely to be uninhabitable. So we won't have globalization cultures dominating the entire world because we won't have fossil fuels to travel and much of the world will be uninhabitable. Wow. Well, last question uh, before anything else that you want to say to, to be complete, but uh, what for you has opened up? Like what, what would you say is the gift or a gift or the gifts that have opened up for you in fully embracing this, this collapse awareness, this collapse understanding? Um, well, actually, to me, and I can, I can say because I know it, uh, for a number of people, um, the word that comes to my mind is relief. Mm 
it's a relief. <laughs> it's a relief in the sense, um, mainly in the sense that stop fighting to try to keep this this kind of civilization running and trying to make it compatible with the rest of the world because it's not just possible yes exactly it's, it's it, by essence it's not possible we have always we're always saying that the, the collapse the col coming collapse is is two sides there's the collapse of the civilization and then there are the collapse or the collapses on both sides of the earth systems and, and very clearly, the, the sooner we have the civilization collapses, the better for the Earth systems. And, and, and if we try to keep this system running longer and longer and longer, then the, the shock will be even harder in a way. So, so that's, that's a relief to see it coming. And I have to say, it's, it's a bit strange to say, but some, sometimes I, I wish it could come earlier not so much because i want to see all these you know it's, it's going Suffering. to be tricky eh? it's going yeah. to be difficult but but the more we wait the more difficult it will be so so in a way let's make it happen in a way yeah. or, or at least let's not not stop it from uh, uh from happening so so that's one relief um the the other relief is that uh i can it gives me the taste. I mean, it, it, it's life is, is even tastier since I mean, for sure, since since I've I'm in the post gloom phase. And I have to say that I'm myself still very optimistic about uh, I don't see near term extinction of the human species simply well, first, you, you give many reasons just before, but also, I'm always saying that to go from 7 billion to zero, that's a hell of a lot of a job and and to go even if we were going to to one tenth which is seven is still 700 million and 700 million in my reference as a belgian is still uh, it's still uh, 70 belgians and 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 that's still a lot of a lot of people even if they will probably uh, you know spread all over the world and as you said only on the habitable part but also this as a biologist i know that uh, I mean, Greenland uh, was flourishing with uh, crocodiles and, and palm trees, and that even if indeed some parts will become unhabitable, other parts will become habitable, although not in five seconds. Yes, exactly. We still, still have a little ice cap covering Greenland. But, but in the long term, yeah, I, I think that, that the people who will go through the, the first phase, maybe not exactly the first 10 years, but, but let's say the first 50 years, uh, will, in my my view, and that, that's also a view, a very strong view we share together with, with Pablo and Rafael, and we put it in the book based on the mutual aid that we've also studied, uh, is that life, all life, not just humans, is full of examples that the more troubles you have, the more mutual aid reinforces itself. Yeah. And I think we will have that with, with uh, human communities. We see it with COVID. We see it with COVID. It, I mean, it has, I mean, COVID has a lot of, of uh, let's say, bad sides, but some of the good sides is that it, it has shown how much mutual aid has been working and sometimes much faster than these big hierarchical systems that couldn't do anything really clever in time. Yes, yes, exactly. Wow. Well, you know, let me just offer one thing that I wanted to get your perspective on is that it seems to me that the, the language of that we are in a climate emergency, 
that uh, things are dire, that we're at risk of civilization, all those seem to me to presuppose that it's about the future. And if we hold that, first of all, it gives, in my opinion, um, unrealistic hope. But the main thing that it does that's negative is that we don't attend to the things that we really should attend to if we know that there are going to be breakdowns uh, in the power systems and, and, and civilization, which I see as three main things that is our sacred responsibility. It's, it's, it's a moral requirement for us to not be evil on a geological time scale. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd phrase it that strongly. Mm -hmm. One is to ensure as few nuclear meltdowns as possible as few nuclear accidents, as few nuclear meltdowns, to case, cap, whatever, take those fuel rods out of the swimming pools and put them somewhere safer. But the nuclear question uh, we need to attend to, not as if civilization is going to have eternal life, but that it's going to collapse and it's already collapsing. And so we need to ensure that we are not evil for the next 5 million years. That's one. The second is that thousands of species of native plants, trees, and shrubs will go extinct this century if humans don't assist them in migrating faster than any other animal can move their seeds. So that assisting migration uh, uh, of, of trees, shrubs, and plants is something that only humans can do. And again, that's holy work even if we go extinct this century because we help to ensure the maximum number of plant species, which of course the animals are dependent upon. And the third is of course, just everything regenerative to invest time and energy in anything and everything, agroecology, permaculture, whatever, but all things regenerative at any scale. And I think we won't attend to those three things if we hold out hope that civilization, industrial civilization can continue. So that's sort of my, <laughs> those are my preaching points these days. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I can react to, to all of them because they all are touching me somewhere. Um, yeah, I have, I have to say also in your question, there was something else I wanted first to say is that, um, yes, indeed, uh, we are entering collapse already. So this, uh, this you know, uh, sentence or mantra, uh, we have uh, still a 10, year, a 10 years window, 10 years windows. We've been saying that for 40 mm -hmm. years and I'm, I'm really right. fed up with this, with this mantra. So let's yeah. face it. Okay, we are going, coming into it. But then also to me, what is really important is to, um, especially in the, in the collapse community, we have to, to imagine that there's a lot of good sides about it. And, and uh, I'm going again to take maybe something a bit easy, but never mind. Uh, if, if you don't have the TV anymore or the internet anymore, which is a bit more difficult to, to conceive at that, that time of history, uh, having, a, you know, having a, a party around a campfire, first, it's an old story, but it's also something that everybody loves it exactly and 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 having uh, uh, you know building nice relationship with your uh, your neighboring you know a bit like bill Coase is doing with the with the mm -hmm. uh, how does he call it the gift communities or mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. the name uh, is is exactly not not only what we need to to go through collapse but what we need to to thrive to, and, be, and human. to be happy and That's to exactly. be happy and and to enjoy life um, so that's one thing I wanted to say first, that, that we, we have to present, and especially when we talk about this with kids, by the way, with kids yes. and teenagers, we have to say that not everything is going to be bad. And actually, let's enjoy it already. I mean, we are, we have been doing, for example, these last two years, 
uh, World That Reconnects uh, workshops, which were not purely workshop, which were, were more tribe times with kids, with young kids. Yes. And of course, we were not talking about collapse. We were just talking collapse between grown-ups. Exactly. But at the same time, we were living as a tribe on a, on a nice piece of land during, during a week. And this gives them the taste of it, even yes. without knowing it. Exactly. And, and then they will be ready, not ready because we will have um, given them instructions, but they will be ready to enjoy it. Yes. So, so, so to me, that's, that's an important part. Now going to your three, your three points. Nuclear, you, you probably don't know how much it resonates for Belgians because right now uh, the, the, the highest density of nuclear plants in the world is more or less centered on Belgium. And one of the most dangerous plants because of its situation is, uh, is in the north of Belgium on the, on, on the, sh on the shore of, a, of, a, of an estuary, which is a nightmare because it means that if you have at the same time a storm, the rising sea uh, and, and the high tide, I mean, a, a more than usual high tide, you have the perfect conditions just to sink it. And then you have Seveso, uh, you know, Seveso uh, site. Seveso is the name of a, um, a, an industrial uh, disaster that occurred in uh, Italy. Oh, Chernobyl? In oh, no, no. no, Seveso. Seveso, oh, it was okay. with dioxin. And, and it gave rise to a whole uh, loss, loss uh, structure in Europe uh, where you have to declare all industries that are really dangerous. And, and near this nuclear plant I'm mentioning, there's one of the big Civizo sites. Uh, so if you had the two exploding together, that would probably sterilize quite a, a surface and imply probably it seems at, if you take the radius you know, of uh, Fukushima, uh, the, 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 the highest number of people ever because you have uh, Antwerpen, which is a one million and a half uh, town, and then you have Amsterdam, and then you have Rotterdam. So that, that's and Maastricht, and I mean, that's a lot of people. So we feel very concerned by this question and also very, uh, uh, let's say, um, uh, again, uh, we've been taught a lot about this topic by Joanna, by Joanna yes. Macy, who yes. started her whole process with this. And, and, and it's true that even if we haven't done it so far, we are talking every now and then in our community about how we can become the stewards of this place. And there's one which is literally 20 kilometers away from here, uh, where we can we could stop them. I have to say that in Belgium, the, the nuclear program is about to stop in the next 10 years time if they don't try to push it further again, as they've done already once. Um, but still, the, the, the nuclear rods will still be there. And right. so we will need stewards for a lot of time to say, don't touch this. And, and it's even a place, as Joanna has proposed, to, to teach other generations how crazy we were and, and how wise we should be of just letting things like that. So that, that's one point. I totally agree with this. It's a huge question. Uh, the second is about uh, the sixth extinction and assisted migration. And, um, and for this, I'm still, um, I'm still on... I'm still trying to, to, to grasp the problem because when, when I discuss it with some people working in forests here, um, some of them are still saying, well, right now, let things evolve by, by themselves. But that implies 
to have completely different scheme of forestry, of course, because forestry right now is very, uh, is very, um, you know, trying to, to, to make things fast and uh, one species and so on. And so that's a disaster for, for, for what- Well, in, just so you know, in North America, it's the foresters that are actually leading the uh, assisted migration move because they've got a financial investment in making sure that the trees that they plant are gonna be able to grow in 20 or 30, 40 years. And so they're already all about taking other species from further south. It's the conservation biologists that have been more dragging their feet. Now, a major book that just came out uh, called The Journeys of Trees, a story about people, forests and the future. W.W. Uh, Norton is the publisher in English, uh, The Journeys of Trees by Zach St. George. And it features my wife, Connie, from the very first sentence throughout the entire book, because she's majorly involved as a voice in this assisted migration. Excellent. Well, I, I, actually, I would be very interested to, to have a chat with her about that, because here it's still, well, I mean, I know also that there are forest people, forest manager people who are already going to, into this direction, but it's still, it's still uh, debated uh, about how to do it to, to make it sounds as natural as possible uh, including bringing together the community of fungi and then blah 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 right. and and some are still counting on the plasticity of the whole community to maybe do something else and then the third is regenerative uh, systems and regenerative ecosystem and that is for sure and we are as you know we are very strongly pushing i mean the two of the three of us are agriculture engineer we've That's been exactly. involved a lot with the permaculture movement and one of the key things that we've been defending in our very first book that you probably don't know of uh, is um, is about bringing trees back into agriculture uh, and and so we have to just plant trees everywhere also yeah. because trees they don't grow in five minutes and if you want trees to protect you in, in 15 years time you better plant them now and yeah. and and that's I mean, that's the theory. In practice, I have to say that, again, agriculture in Europe is a nightmare, yes. how it is uh, supported by the EC, by the way, to, to remain industrial. And, and although the, the, there's a, a very strong push by the people, and, and that's how it transforms, by the way, is because people are asking for something else. But the support of the big support of the, the, the EC is really still not there, uh, although we're, we're still waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, Gautier, this has been so fabulous. Uh, anything that you'd like to say to bring this completion, to this conversation to completion? Um, well, first, um, to me, there's a paradox. I mean, I'm I'm really happy that we 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 could do that. Uh, I'm really happy to join this community in a way. I also think it would be really nice to have uh, Pablo because Pablo is really the 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 one. Uh, of the trio who is completely in the in the spotlight and so he has no also uh, i would say a lot more different things to say also because pablo is in the south of france whereas we are in in belgium so it's ah. also another another point of view that he could bring he is half colombian by the way i don't know if you know that okay yeah uh, so he has and, and how is his how is his english uh, his English is maybe not not as good as mine, which is not good either. But but uh, but we went together to London to have some conferences with Jim Bendel and Group of Three. So I think I think I mean, I'll reach out to him again. To do it, yes, uh, and I can encourage him to to do That's it. That's great. Where the paradox is for me is that um, this community is is uh, alive right now because we have the internet and because we we still have uh, power running in our computers. 
and uh, and I think we have also to prepare uh, not only to have to accept that this community at some point will dilute, but also and and to me it's also one thing I'm preparing a lot. Uh, I'm saying to my my grown up kids all the time start to to live without computers so that it's you don't miss them too much once they, they are connectable only two hours a day and maybe not connected to the web anymore. Amen. Okay, and so let's prepare everything and let's have also, you know, one, well, one, one of the first thing we did when we, ha we had our first uh, collapse meeting between friends was to take our postal address again because none of us knew where the others were living. Yes, yes, yes. And if, if you suddenly we don't have any phones anymore, then we... How do I find the others? And so that's maybe also a good advice for all of us. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com. <laughs>